So today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verse 8. Very simple. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before our star of the day comes up, I just want to uh, kind of frame what's going on here for you guys. My name is Randy. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa. And uh, if you're new here, you might be new here because... The Durans invited you to have a special place in your life, or maybe you just wandered in here today to let you know what's going on. Today is sort of a, with a special and unusual service for us today in that uh, we are commissioning David and Margot Duran and their family to go plant a church in Plymouth, Massachusetts today. This is, will be their last Sunday with us as a church, yes? And just to give you an idea, this is kind of what is happening today. This is a, a passage from Acts, if you could show that for me, Acts 13, 1 through 3. Uh, this was in Antioch. Now, there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's what we're going to be doing today. A lot of prayer and a lot of fasting has gone into this moment. Uh, the Durans have been here for three and a half years. They have heard a call to plant a church in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Uh, we have affirmed that call. Many others have affirmed that call. They have been assessed multiple times by multiple agencies who have all affirmed the call. A number of you are supporters of them, both by prayer and financially, and they're going to need more of both of that, by the way, just an appeal that he won't make to you guys, probably for prayer, but he will need, they will need both. Um, they've trained and they've prepared for this moment, and now what's happening is we are, as a church, sacrificially sending our best. That's what happened in the church at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were the two best that they had. And we are sacrificially sending our best to Plymouth, Massachusetts, because we believe that God has called, I'm going to get emotional. Because we believe that God has called them. Um, as you guys know, David Duran is among the finest men that I've ever known. I'll pull it together, Jeff. He loves the Lord. He's incredibly smart and incredibly capable. The interesting thing and the really special thing about him is that even though he's so smart and so capable and stands head and shoulders above both, most of us, <laughs> he's incredibly humble. And that's why I have no hesitation in sending him and Margot. Uh, Margot is also incredibly humble, and she's a firecracker, and she loves people. And I can't wait for her to go back to Massachusetts and see what the Lord is going to do through her and through him together. Uh, we're going to miss them terribly. Um, terribly, we're going to miss them. And that's okay. It's a lot like when Paul said goodbye to the 
elders at Ephesus, and it says they all kind of grasped together, embraced, and cried and wept until they basically had no more tears to weep. And then there'd be some laughter this morning, there might be some clapping, some applause, there also might be some tears, and that's okay, because that just means that we are sending our best, because, because we believe that the kingdom of God is more important than our momentary comfort. We believe that Jesus Christ deserves to be seen for the glorious, beautiful one that he is in Plymouth, Massachusetts, in the Boston area. And we believe that even though our part of our hearts will go with the Durans whenever they leave, that that way part of us will go with them on the mission that they're going to go. And some of the fruit that they see, we'll get to have a part of that. Because of our hearts going with them, our finances, and our prayers. So just join me in praying real quickly as he comes up and he gives his, it won't be his final sermon at Doxa, but the final sermon of, of this season. Father, we thank you for David and for Margo. And God, I just ask you a simple prayer. Would you anoint him and strengthen him as he brings the word to us? God, may you stir our hearts, and God, may we hear you speak through him and in him. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. i be honest, I do not know how I'm going to get through this today. With with the Lord's help, um, we're going to do it. It really is uh, it's such a joy for me to be here with you all uh, this morning. As you know, um, member of Doxa Church, church planter with Harbor Network and the North American Mission Board. And man, today, um, it's different. This is a different Sunday, obviously. And um, man, I'm just, um, I'm overwhelmed, overwhelmed. On this day, it's really, it's been a long time in the making. There's been, there's been delays, there's been some changes. We've made some adjustments along the way, but by God's grace, we have made it to this point. I really, I want to thank um, all the family and friends who have come out to uh, worship the Lord with us and to uh, support us. Uh, my family is here uh, from Atlanta. Um, Friends that I have not seen in a long time, and it's just, it's a blessing to see um, so many of you all here. Um, And really, Margo and I, we just want to say thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Um, You all have played major roles in our lives uh, through your prayers, your support, your friendship, and, and before we get going here, I just want you to know how much we love all of you and how much we're going to miss all of you. We came here three and a half years ago, and we just knew, we just knew a couple of you, just a couple of you, and over these years, we have truly made lifelong friends and friends that we'll have for all of eternity. And this church will forever be family to us. It's just, it's been such a privilege to call this place home. And I could really, as I'm looking out at your faces, I could spend the rest of the time just telling stories of how you've encouraged us, of the things you've said, the things you've done that have helped to further equip us, Lord willing, for a lifetime of ministry. And so many of you, you've said things, you've done things, 
and you don't even realize the difference that you've made. Church, I hope that any and all fruit that comes from King's Cross Church in the coming years, I'm going to echo what Randy said, I hope and pray you view that as your own, because it is. This church is forever linked to King's Cross Church. And this will be the last Sunday that you see us for a while. That's true. But it is certainly not goodbye. This is not goodbye. We're, we're kind of like your kids that you're sending off to college. We're going to be back from time to time. We'll call and check in and let you know how we're doing. Feel free to come and visit us as well. Spirit Airlines flies directly into Boston. You can get cheap flights. Come Come visit us. We would love to see you. But even though we'll be gone, well, church, we very much still need each and every one of you. We need your continual prayer and support. We need your encouragement. We need your friendship. We will not forget about you, and we, we know, we trust that you will not forget about us. Well, we've got just one sentence from Jesus to look at this morning. Just 11 words in our English translations here. But what Jesus is saying, like everything Jesus says, is pretty significant for us to consider. And I've had a couple of you ask me, Matthew 5.8, your last sermon at Doxa, why did you pick that? Here's, it's, it's a very simple reason. I am astounded at this verse. This verse has gripped me and captivated me in recent weeks, and I want it to do the same thing for you. So that's why we're there. Uh, but let's pray before we get going, and let's ask for the Lord's help as we look at this verse. And as I'm, I'm leading, I'm going to pray for just a couple of minutes, praying for different things. I encourage you all to pray to the Lord as well. This isn't just a time of me talking, you listening, maybe you doze off for a minute here. It's really a time for us together to seek the Lord in prayer. I'm praying, I'm leading, but church, let's all be praying together. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here this morning to worship you. We're here to be in your presence. We're here to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into the likeness of Christ. And we need you to do a work that we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, there's a deep desire in every person in this room to find forgiveness and acceptance and everlasting joy, satisfaction. We acknowledge that that can only be found in you, Jesus Christ. And while we know that this is true, we admit that we have difficulty, we have trouble at times believing this. Oh, our hearts and our desires are prone to wander away from you. We've forsaken the fountain of living waters and settled for broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Father, we need your spirit to renew us, to breathe fresh life into us this morning and every morning. It really is the only hope that we have. We need to be renewed individually and as a church. And so we plead with you, Lord. We plead that you would do that, knowing that you love to answer the prayers of your people. 
Heavenly Father, give us a glimpse of your glory. Give us a taste of your goodness. Cause us to marvel at your majesty. Don't let us leave here without sanctifying us in transforming us to better reflect and represent you in this world. You are our God. We are your people. And we seek your face together this morning. Father, we pray for Pablo and Ali as they get ready to leave on their mission trip to Colombia. Lord, knit their hearts together as they prepare to engage in mission for your kingdom. We praise you and thank you that you have met all their financial needs for this trip. God, protect them from attacks from Satan towards their marriage. May they not only minister to the people of Colombia, but Lord, we ask that you minister to them. What a blessing it is to have them as members of this congregation. And we ask for your continued blessing on this couple. Lord, it's our prayer that our church would have the privilege of sending more people across the world to share the message and mercy of Christ. Allow us to keep sending people on short-term mission trips and long-term mission trips. Raise up missionaries and church planters in this congregation. Lord, help us see our neighborhoods and workplaces and everywhere we go as opportunities to engage people with your gospel. Cause your spirit to come alive within us. You have given us everything we need. Jesus, wake us from our slumber. Father, we lift up those congregations in Boston and along the South Shore of Massachusetts that are worshiping you today. We pray for Life Community Church, for Emmanuel Church, City on a Hill Church, New Hope Church, and Mayflower Church. Bless the ministry of these congregations, Lord, for your glory. And now as we consider your word, I pray that it would come alive. Lord, cause it to come alive for us. Help me to say things that are true and edifying. Keep my mouth from error. By the power of your, your spirit, sink this truth deep into our hearts. We don't just need our minds to be enlightened here. We need our hearts to be transformed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't think anyone would dispute the fact that there is a deep desire within every human being to be happy. This isn't something that's unique to our age, but it's something that pervades human existence. Hollywood makes movies about the pursuit of happiness. Musicians write songs about the pursuit of happiness. And philosophers theorize about happiness. It was Aristotle that said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. There's a desire to be content, to be filled with joy, to be filled with peace, to be at peace. And that, by the way, that's how I'm defining happiness. It's not a flippant, sort of carefree, jolly attitude. That's not what it is. Happiness is actually a deeply biblical concept. We're going to see that in what Jesus is saying in our passage this morning. The problem is, we really have a hard time figuring out who it is, or what it is, or when it is that we will finally be happy. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, begins his little book, On the Happy Life, with this sentence. 
He wrote this 2,000 years ago, but listen how accurately this describes our day. He writes, everyone, Brother Gallio, desires to live happily, but are dull at perceiving exactly what it is that makes life happy. Our passage this morning is just one statement from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And this particular statement from Jesus, it comes right at the beginning of a section known as the Beatitudes. Now, hopefully, many of you remember that we preached through the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago. I think it was the fall of uh, 2021 that we started that and we worked through that over the next few months. But I want to work through just one verse uh, in this section for a couple of reasons. First, and maybe this is just my opinion, but I think this message, this Sermon on the Mount, is going to carry a special significance for the people of God in the coming years. Not that this sermon hasn't been important before, obviously, but I think more and more our society is wondering, and perhaps you are wondering this today, what does it mean to truly follow Jesus? Do I need to just align with a particular political party? Is following Jesus mainly about just sort of keeping a set of rules? To be a disciple of Jesus, do I really just need to say that I believe the right things? The theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and that's Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is discipleship. It's about the lifestyle of the people of the kingdom of God. It's not just a pattern uh, for society to follow. That's really too simplistic of an understanding of this. Here, Jesus is describing life in his kingdom. This entire sermon, again, that's Matthew 5 through 7. Go back, read it over and over and over again. It is the demand of Jesus of all who respond to him. Needless to say, it would be wise for us to to consider carefully what Jesus says. Now our verse this morning, Matthew 5, 8, right at the beginning of this sermon is a section known as the Beatitudes. If you have your Bible in front of you, you probably see that heading right there. And what's going on here is is pretty significant. Jesus is describing what it is that makes his people happy. The word that's translated there as blessed or blessed is also translated as happy. And what's unique about this, and I don't think I really grasped the significance of this until recently, is these are not just promises for the future. Now we must understand what Jesus is saying, these promises, in light of the present aspect of the kingdom of God. If you've got your Bible in front of you, look over it. It might be on the same page, you might have to flip back one page. But flip to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew 4, 17. This is shortly before the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. And look what Jesus says. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what I'm saying. Matthew 5, 8, and the rest of the Beatitudes here They are future promises with present applications. Future promises with present applications. So with all that sort of background and understanding there, 
that brings us now to Matthew 5.8. Of the 8 to 10 Beatitudes here, depending on how you divide it up, this one is the one that I find the most shocking and difficult to get my mind around. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, I get that one. That one makes sense. It's a beautiful promise, but I can see how that would fit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. A little bit tougher one, but I can see it. Especially if you have an understanding of who Jesus is and you you understand the gospel a little bit. But blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That statement from Jesus is particularly shocking. And it would have been extremely shocking for the people who are listening to this. We'll see God, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus, how can that be? It's even more crazy because, as I mentioned, these are future promises, present applications now. So what I want to do, I've got a really simple outline for us. This is how we're going to proceed forward. Just really two questions. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the first part. What does that mean? We're going to look at that together. And then the second part, for they shall see God. What on earth is going on there? And then how do these two things fit together? And my hope is not that we just sort of see how it fits. Oh, church, I want you to experience the beauty in this statement from Jesus as we're looking at it. I don't just want your mind to be, oh, that's cool, I see how that fits. No, I want your heart to be enlightened. I want you to experience the joy and happiness that's here. So, blessed are the pure in heart. The concept of purity of heart, it's something that we see throughout the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of examples from the Psalms so you can see what I'm talking about. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. About Psalm 73, 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. So Jesus he, really, he isn't introducing some sort of new concept here when he's talking about purity of heart. It's not new. That, that concept's been going on. In fact, the Bible, it has a lot to say about the condition of our hearts. And I should point this out here just so we're all on the same page. The heart as it's used in Scripture, that is our spiritual center. It's where our emotions and our desires dwell. It's in our heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, the problem for us all, and if you're we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit this. The problem is our hearts are not pure. Our hearts are not pure. And in case we're, we're unaware to recognize this, Scripture points it out for us. Just one example, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So friends, what are we to do? Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yet, no one has a pure heart. No one has a pure heart. What 
What are we to make of this? I think the error that is typically made by both followers of Jesus and people who really don't, they don't know Jesus, but they have this understanding that there's something going on inside of me that's not good. I think the error that's made is we immediately jump to moral behavior. We immediately jump to moralism, doing good deeds. But here's the thing. Morality cannot change your heart. Outward behavior cannot change your spiritual condition. Morality does not necessitate a pure heart. Let me give you just a really silly illustration. You ready for this? Silly illustration. I have this four-pound little Pomeranian at home. He's definitely not a very moral dog, um, by the way. But for as long as we've had him, he's exhibited characteristics of a cat. He licks his paws like a cat. He kind of, he kind of likes to be off by himself like a cat. Whenever he sees one in the neighborhood, he sort of runs up to it, and he can't really runs, so he waddles over to the cat, not because he wants to bark at it, but because he just wants to hang out with it. This dog desperately wants to be and act like a cat. But it doesn't matter what this dog does to be a cat. He's a dog. Now I know that's it's a very silly illustration. I acknowledge that. But I think it's equally silly to think that our outward condition, our outward deeds can change what's going on in here. Purity of heart. Now, it doesn't exclude purity of life, right? Not at all. But purity of heart, purity of heart, it doesn't come from purity of life. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't work that way. The Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, he has a really strong quote about this. Watson says, a man who is but highly moral is a tame devil. A man who is but highly moral is a tame devil. So, where does purity of heart come from? I mean, there's pretty significant blessing attached to this, right? The pure in heart shall see God. Not the morally upright not the wise theologian who knows every question to every biblical answer that you could ever ask. No, it's the pure at heart. Friends, the only path to a pure heart is to be astounded by grace. The only path to a pure heart is to be astounded by grace. The pure in heart are those who have had their lives totally transformed by the grace of God. It's a receiving of his grace that transforms our hearts and makes them pure. The inward holiness that is connected with purity of heart, it only comes about when the grace and mercy of God takes us captive. And the good news of the gospel is that grace and mercy is extended to the the vile of heart, like me and like you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
We're preaching through John's gospel right now. You remember the prologue when John writes? He says, for from his fullness, that's from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's God's grace. It's his unmerited gift of divine favor that makes our hearts pure. It's the gift of Jesus in our place on the cross. It's the gift of Jesus' resurrection as our resurrection to new life. Church, purity of heart is a defining characteristic of the people of God. And oh, how happy are the pure in heart. So Christian, I have a question for you. Are you astounded by the grace of God? Are you astounded by the grace of God? And if your answer is no, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you for being honest with that. And let me suggest that your appreciation and your astonishment of God's grace is directly related to your understanding of your own sinfulness. If you see yourself to be a pretty decent person, you'll understand God's grace to just be a nice little Christian truth. It's only when we understand just how messed up we are and just how deceitful and wicked we are that we come to savor the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, God is good to the pure-hearted. He gives the pure in heart an astonishing promise, right? It's the pure in heart who shall see God. I think, I've already sort of alluded to this, I think I might have even said it outright, but I think this promise is one of the most shocking and beautiful promises in all of Scripture. In fact, it's really, really difficult to get our minds around. And part of me was a little bit nervous to even present it sort of in this kind of context because I I don't want to cause any confusion. But what I want to do is I want to suggest that this promise, this reality that we will see God, the pure in heart will see God, that is what you were made for. You were made to see God in his fullness. Now this this seeing God, this vision of God, it's often referred to as the beatific vision. And that word beatific, it just, it just means blissfully happy. And I think this concept of, of seeing God, this beatific vision, it's something that we rarely think about. Be honest, I hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about it till recently, but it's really transformed me. It, it really has changed my life. That's not an overstatement. I mean, when, when was the last time you thought about seeing God. When was the last time you thought about what it would mean, what it would be like to be face to face with God? I admit, it's a great deal of mystery when it comes to that idea of seeing God. But at the same time, we need to realize that it is all over the Bible. And men and women throughout church history have had a lot to say about this. Let me Let me show you just a couple of places in the Bible uh, where this is so you know that I'm not making it up. 
Um, that's important for me to do, right? If I can't show you, then it, it really doesn't matter. It's just my opinion, and it's worthless. So let's see where it is in the Bible. How about Psalm 27.4? One thing I've asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The Apostle John he loves the idea of seeing God. It's in his gospel. We've seen some of that already. We'll see it more as we keep preaching through it. It's in his letters. It's in the, the book of Revelation. He talks about seeing God. 1 John 3.2, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So what, what does that mean? What does it mean to see God? Seeing God, and I understand this might be a little bit confusing or complicated, but hang with me here. Seeing God as it's communicated and talked about in Scripture is actually about much more than seeing. That's just the best way that the writers can describe it, is, is uh, having us imagine it sort of through our eyes. But it's about so much more than seeing. It's about a direct encounter with God. It's about seeing and experiencing the divine essence of God Almighty. And this, this seeing of God is the highest possible human experience. There is no higher, no greater experience that we could ever have than seeing God. And the fullness the completeness of human happiness is found here. It's found in seeing God. And brothers and sisters, this will be our experience for all of eternity. This seeing, this contemplating of God, it's an ever-increasing experience. Forever and ever, we will be in perfect communion with God the Father. Friends, when we understand our end, I think, when we understand what we'll be doing for all of eternity, it changes drastically how we view our lives now. In many ways, this life, it's preparing us for what we will be doing for all of eternity. We're learning to see God. We're learning to commune, to be with him. And as people who all desperately want to be happy, it's the seeing of God where our happiness reaches its fullness. That longing that all of us have to be happy, we all have it, can only be found before the face of God. And the people of God, we long for the face of God. Now at present, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? We don't see him in his fullness now. But church, we absolutely do see him. We see him now. The clearest way we see him is in the life of Jesus. Right? Jesus said, John 14, 9, Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. When we read through the Gospels, we see the life of Jesus. We see the life of God. We see what he's like. We see how he lived. We actually... We see him in the scriptures, right? 
We also see him in the sacraments of baptism and communion. When we think of our baptism, and by the way, if you're here and you're a Christian, you're a professing follower of Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, talk to someone about that. Talk to one of our elders. We would love to, to, be, to have that joy of baptizing you into the family of God. It's, it's a command of Jesus to be baptized. But when we think of our own baptism or when our church has the joy of baptizing someone, we see a very real picture of how our old life has been put to death. In our new life, we've been raised to new life in Christ. We see Jesus' death and resurrection in baptism. and In a very real way, we see him. When we take communion together, we see the broken body of Christ in the bread. We see his shed blood in the juice. These aren't just strange little rituals that Christians do that we've been doing for forever, so we just, it's just a nice little thing to do on Sundays. That's, that's not what this is. Baptism and communion, they give us a picture of Christ. Friends, don't, don't expect to see God if you're not looking for him. Now, you, you could have a Damascus Road experience like Paul where Jesus appears and knocks you off the horse or whatever. That's possible, right? But don't expect to see him if you aren't looking for him. Don't expect to experience him in a very real way if you aren't humbly seeking him. Now there will be plenty of times in our life, and I know many of you are probably experiencing this right now, where it feels like we're seeking his face. And we want to see him, but we can't seem to find him. There will be times in our Christian life where God seems distant. He seems absent. When we experience a miscarriage, the death of a loved one, we wonder, where, where are you, Lord? When our life isn't going the way we we've hoped, or the way we've dreamed. What's going on, Lord? Where are you? I want to see you. I can't seem to find you. When pain and suffering are all around us, and, and God seems totally distant, and his goodness seems non-existent, this reality of the beatific vision, that we will see him forever and ever, for all of eternity, perfect union with him. Oh, it brings such happiness, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. Before the face of God, there will be no more pain. There will be no more death, no more suffering, no more discontentment, no more disappointment. Forever and ever, friends, we'll experience a blissfully happy existence as we participate in a direct vision of the Godhead. Does that not just blow your mind? Christian, this is your end. This is our end. And really, when I say it's our end, it's actually just our beginning. It's just our beginning. It's our eternity. I feel like the last two or three sermons I'm preaching through John, I wind up quoting from Revelation. I'm going to keep that theme going today. Because Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, so powerful in this. This is, this is the end of the book, right? This is the end. Listen to what John writes. He says, No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Oh, Christian, does that promise excite you? Does it give you joy? Does it make you happy? That's what it's intended to do. It's the purpose of it. To live happy is to see God in this life and for all of eternity in the life to come. And if you're here today and you're interested in this kind of life, a life that makes beholding God, seeing God, its ultimate aim, and from this this vision of him, uh, this experience of him, living a life that gives him glory, We have many people in this room who would love to talk to you. I hope if that's you, you you won't sneak out real quick. I hope you'll hang around and talk to someone. I'll be up here at the front when we get done. I think we'll have someone back in the prayer area. Um, Please don't leave here if you have questions. If you have questions, hang around, talk to people. We would love to to hang out with you. We so desperately want you to know this, this rich, deep, satisfying, happy love of God the Father. Doxa Church, it's the pure at heart who see God. The pure at heart see God. Those who have had their hearts enthralled by the grace of God participate in the life of God, in this life and in the life to come. So church, see him, savor him, treasure him, and let your heart overflow with happiness. Let it overflow with happiness as you see him. Now we get the joy of seeing him as we take communion together. When we receive the bread and the juice, I already mentioned it, I'm going to say it again. See Christ's body broken for you. See his blood shed for you. Remember, Christian, this is your end forever and ever perfect communion with God. Let your heart, let your heart, let your spiritual core be strengthened through faith as we take this meal together. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this meal is open to you. If you're not a Christian, please know we are so honored that you are here with us. And we hope, we hope you'll come back. Hope you'll come back with questions and uh, just see what it's like to Um, sort of participate in the life of the church. We hope you'll hang around. Um, But this meal is not for you. This meal is not for you. Uh, And please do not feel awkward about not coming forward. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, you're actually, you're showing us a great deal of respect and honor by not participating if you would acknowledge you're not a follower of Christ. Instead, what I would encourage you to do, just think over everything you've heard today. Consider what it would mean for you to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ and live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. So communion is going to be served at two stations here in the front. As you feel led, you come forward. You can receive the bread and the juice. Make your way back to your seat, and then someone will come forward and lead us in taking the elements together. So let's pray. Let's continue to worship and let's continue to seek the face of God together. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, our hearts long for you. We want more of you in our church. We want more of you in our lives. Would you give us eyes to see you? Would you give us hearts that love you? May we be transformed from the inside out because we've seen you. Astonish us with your grace. We love you now and forever and ever. In Christ's name, amen.